0: Good afternoon. Uh, just begin by uh, saying kala to everybody who stayed for the very last year of this five day in AUN. Give yourselves a hand. Um, certainly, uh, I know some of you have been here just for one day, which is also impressive, especially, and I, I think many of you have been here for several days, maybe even for all five days. And uh, certainly, it uh, shows uh, great commitment to come to this last year. Um, I'm El Ziegler, and we're going to be talking about the unique traits of the house of Rachel, of Bnei Rachel. And we're going to begin by noting that oftentimes the Tanakh presents uh, what we would call hereditary character traits. Of course, uh, the Tanakh doesn't recognize the word uh, genetics or hereditary, uh, but certainly does present traits that are embodied in a tribe or in a family line. These traits may be physical, they may be related more to character, right? So for example, we might say that uh, Binyamin, Shevet Binyamin, uh, have many left-handed people, right? We have that in several places in Tanakh, or maybe quite good with the bow and arrow, they may be sharpshooters, right? And that seems to be a trait that is embodied by the tribe of Binyamin, We may say something about the character of the tribe of Levi. They are uh, passionate, they are impetuous. We could talk about the tribe of Yehuda, They're straightforward, right? They're bold. These are things that we can say because we can isolate different members of this tribe and see that those character traits appear over and over and over throughout Tanakh stories that have those characters. Now it's not just we who are reading the Tanakh and recognizing this. Chazal recognized this as well. And we oftentimes will have a Midrash, which once again, without using the word hereditary, will discuss similar character traits that arise in different families or in different tribes. And the question that we have when we when we, uh, when we encounter this in different Tanakh stories or in the Midrash is, what does this mean, right? What, what do these character traits what, what what are we meant to learn from them? We as students of the Tanakh, and also as students of the Tanakh who are interested in the way in which human relationships in the Tanakh are meant to be used towards our relationship with God. How do we try to use these different character traits in order to deepen our relationship with God? And I'll make just maybe one general point before we turn to the specific case test case that I want to work with today, which is the children of Rachel. And that is that I think one of the messages that we see over and over throughout the Tanakh stories, which show us these different character traits that different families possess, that run through families, and that people are just born into, is the message that when one is born with certain character traits, with certain gifts, one is meant to use those gifts. Right, And we're, we're meant to look at ourselves and try to isolate our strengths and those gifts which God has given us and to use them in our relationship with God. So that if they're just things that we sort of float through life having possession of certain character traits, well then they will either not be used properly in order to fulfill our destiny or perhaps even they can be corrupted and used for the promotion of our own interests, for our own self-promotion, rather than using them properly for the purpose for which God gave them to us. And therefore, I think it's very important to try to note how some of the different characters in Tanakh, some of the different families in Tanakh have been given different character traits, and what kind of responsibility comes with having been given those character traits. Okay, that having been said, I want to spend today specifically focused on what Chazal call Baneha Shel Rachel, right? The children of Rachel. This uh, becomes a theme among different Midrashim or within different Midrashim. The Midrashim are oftentimes discussing the children of Rachel as a unit who possess certain common features. When we talk about the children of Rachel, we have some very prominent characters who are considered to be the children of Rachel, not just, of course, her two children, Yosef and Benjamin, but when the Midrash talks about the children of Rachel, it is also alluding to Yehoshua, also alluding to Shaul, and of course Shaul's children, Yonatan and Michal, we also have Ehud ben Gerah, and of course, Esther and Mordechai, and a few others who we might allude to today as well, such as, for example, Yerovam ben Navat, who is the first king of the Northern Kingdom and is called an Ephrati. All of these prominent Tanakh figures that I've just named are Baneha Shal Rachel. Now, um, when Chazal talk about Baneha Shal Rachel, They talk about certain interesting features, and again, I don't think that the Midrash is coming to say that every single descendant of Rachel has these features, but that these are features which tend to run in this particular family and represent not just the strength of that family, but also the weakness of that family. Of course, every character trait has strength and weakness, but perhaps more importantly, the destiny of that family. The family has to fulfill its role within Am Yisrael by somehow realizing these traits, by recognizing them, by employing them, by applying them properly in their role as part of Am Yisrael. What are these traits that the Midrash talks about when the Midrash talks about Banaz Shal Rachel? I want to draw your attention to three different ideas that appear in the Midrashim. And then I want to add one additional idea, which I think is very much part of the feature of many of these stories in the Tanakh. So the first feature that I want you to see is here on your source sheet in source number one. It's a pretty well-known midrash. It's actually a wonderful midrash. It's an extraordinary example of how the midrash does linguistic comparisons, right? And, and the sensitivity, the literary sensitivity of the midrash really comes through in this particular midrash. This midrash is comparing specifically Yosef, the direct son of Rachel, with Mordechai, you could say, slash Esther, who of course are not the children of Yosef, are the descendants of Binyamin. So this comparison falls under the rubric of Baneha Shel Rachel, right? Not Bene Yosef, but Baneha Shel Rachel. Let's look here at the Midrash in Bereishit Rabbah. In Bereishit Rabbah, we're specifically talking about the encounter of Yosef and Eshat Potiphar, right? In Bereishit Parakalamitet. The Midrash Quotes the pasuk as follows: el Yosef yom yom. Right? She every single day was badgering Yosef. Rabbi Yudan b'shem Rabbi Biniamin Amar baneha shel Rachel Nisan Shave Ugdula Shave. The children of Rachel, their tests are similar. And their greatness is similar. Nisan Sheven, where do we see that they endure similar tests which require similar stamina or similar piety and integrity in order to withstand? Well, we have the story of Eshet Potiphar, Vayi El Yosef Yom Yom. And then in the story of Esther, we have the same exact pasuk. Vayi Yom Vayom. Right, that's of course the story of the servants of the king asking Mordechai or urging Mordechai to bow before Haman as the king commanded. Viloshama elehan. Continuing in the midrash, here this is of course talking about Yosef. Yosef did not listen to Eshet Potiphar. and the same is true in the case of Mordechai and Avdei HaMelech and the servants of the king. Vilo shama alehem. These linguistic comparisons are very, very strong, and they suggest that Yosef and Mordechai undergo very similar experiences, both of which, of course, that both of these tests, of course, they pass with flying colors. Lo lo But they also rise to prominence in very similar ways. Look at what the Pasuk in Bereshit Mem Aleph tells us about Yosef. Vayasar paro et tabato. Paro took off his ring and of course gave it to Yosef. And as there we have the very same pasuk. et tabato. ota Right, we're going back and forth, back and forth. The Paro takes off his ring and gives it to Yosef. The King takes off his ring. Achashverus takes off his ring and gives it to Mordechai. Well, we're going back again to Bereishit Perak Mem Aleph. Vayalbash oto Day sheish. Haro had Yosef dressed in royal clothes. Well, Ahasverosh also has Mordechai dressed in royal clothes. halavush Okay, the, the uh, Midrash goes on and describes the jewelry that is put on Yosef. al-savaro et Mordechai al They're both placed in chariots. Look at the Pasuk about Yosef. A Pasuk from Bereshit Mem Aleph. It's a little hard to follow because the, the, the Midrash sort of runs into each other, right? But this is a Pasuk about Yosef. Well, we have the very same Pasuk about Mordechai. And both of them have someone going before the chariot announcing the prominence of the person sitting in the chariot with Yosef it v'ikre'u lefanav Avrech. and with Mordechai it v'ikra'lefanav kacha yasel Selaish asher hamelach chafei tvi This is really, I think, it's a wonderful midrash. I think it's a, an indication, again, as I said before, of Chazal's literary sensitivity. And the midrash is noting that the children of Rachel really have certain very strong similarities. The first similarity that they are interested in us noting is their strength of character, right? That sometimes uh, people are put in a situation in which they have to overcome the pressures of society. And the B'nei Shel Rachel are very good at this. Okay, now, as I said before, all character traits have a negative side to them. And I will mention one, perhaps what what, what could be a a negative manifestation of this strength of character, and that is, of course, that we know that Yosef is very good at standing alone, right? Yosef is very much the other in the family, okay? Okay. He's the one who, He has learned to stand strong, to stand alone. Even in his bracha, he is described as nizir l'echav, which seems to imply his separateness, right? Um, in contrast to Yosef, and perhaps one of the reasons that Yehudah is chosen to be the leader of Am Yisrael, is because Yuda is very much a unifier, and there's something about Yosef which is not just other, but almost a divider. Okay, so that certainly is something which is perhaps a negative manifestation of this ability to stand strong and to withstand the pressures of society. However, when we're looking at this idea in Chazal, we want to ask ourselves, of course, why? What what are the Bnei Rachel supposed to do with this? Is it just if they happen to be in a situation in which they are being pressured to do something wrong, they know not to do it? What does that mean for the destiny of Bnei Rachel? What does that teach us about their role in Am Yisrael? Okay, so I'm I'm leaving that question aside. I'm leaving that question hanging. And... um, I'm going to take you on to our next source which talks about Baneha Shel Rachel. Of course, I'll just mention at the end of the last idea, it's not just that Nisan Shave, it's not just that their test is a similar test, but their ability to withstand societal pressure ultimately is the background for their rise to the pinnacle of society. Both of these figures become extremely prominent in a foreign setting and in, obviously, a very powerful position in a foreign setting. Um, the second idea that I want to draw your attention to in terms of Baneha Shel Rachel appears here in source number two. It's also Bereshit Rabbah. this Midrash comes up in several different contexts and the idea is is that Baneha Shel Rachel are equipped to fight Amalek. Now, some of you may have been in Yael Schlesberg's uh, class yesterday where she spoke about one aspect of this. I'm going to be taking it in a little bit of a different direction. But if you look at this, Barashi Rabbah, look at what it says here. V'yehi kasher yosef, kivan shenolad yosef nolad sitno shel esav. Esav, of course, the continuation of Esav is Amalek, right? He is a descendant. Of Esav, when Yosef was born, the one who uh, uh the one who was born who was able to be the adversary of Asab. Esab Rachel. Okay, I won't go into the proof text right now, but this is the second idea. It's one that occurs quite frequently in Midrashic texts. Many different ideas have been mentioned why, and I hope we'll get to this as we continue through the year. So the second idea is, is that the Banim Shah Rachel, the children of Rachel, have the ability to uh, to battle Amalek. And of course, we know that this is true, right? It's, it's, there's something in their character that enables them to battle whatever it is specifically that Amalek uh, uh, embodies, that Amalek characterizes. But actually, if we look at the different cases, there's little doubt that we have many, many Banim Shel Rachel, many children of Rachel who are fighting Amalek. Whether we're talking about Yehoshua, right, in that original battle, Or later on, Gideon, who fights Midian, Amalek, and Bnei Kedem. And Gideon, we didn't even mention before, but he is, of course, a child, uh, a descendant of Menashe, right? Or perhaps Shaul, certainly, or Esther and Mordechai, who in fighting Haman ha is also fighting the continuation of Agag, who is the king of Amalek, certainly according to our traditional sources. The last point that I found in Chazal, that talks about the character traits of the children of Rachel. I brought for you in in source number three. Again, this idea appears in in several different uh, variations. I brought for you the one that I thought was clearest. Rachel Tafsa Pelech shtika. Rachel grabbed for herself a pestle of silence, right? Rachel is a character that knows how to be silent. The Bale Mysterine, And all of her descendants were mysterious figures, right? In that in that they don't reveal, right? They conceal more than they reveal. Binyamin Yashfeh. Right, what is that alluding to? That's the stone. That's binyamin's stone in the chosen. Anyone anyway, know what a Yashfe is? I looked it up today. It's a jasper, if anybody knows what that is, okay? <laughs> but but what the Midrash is interested in here is that yashfe is a combination of the words Yesh Peh, right? He has a mouth. You, you might not know it, right? Because he doesn't use it. I, I would say very much, but that wouldn't be accurate. At all, Binyamin never speaks. He, he's no Yisachar, right? He's no, uh, you know... A uh, marginal tribe. This is a figure that is that is, features very prominently in the stories of Sefer Ben but he never speaks—not once. Okay. Now, what what the midrash here is pointing out is that there's one occasion where he really should have spoken, and that is Yodea the shel Yosef Magid. He knows what happened with the sale of Yosef, but he never. Tells. Okay, how the Midrash knows that and what it's trying to say, I'm going to leave that to the side for now. Let's look at a few more characters from the Rachel family who the Midrash points to as uh, figures who embody this character trait of silence. Shaul, the Devar HaMelucha Higid. right? He doesn't tell about the kingship, even after he comes back from that journey and his uncle asks him, what happened to you today? He doesn't tell him. Esther. So we have this whole array of Rachel's descendants, of descendants of Rachel, who don't speak, who are very quiet. Okay, and, and Rachel herself, of course, is praised for this. She knows that that uh, that that Yaakov is being married off to Leah, and she doesn't reveal it to him. I think that there's a lot to add here to this midrash and some of the different variations on the midrash. Add different stories, so I'm just going to add a few more. Think of the word cherish, macharish, which means to be silent. It always appears with Baneha Shel Rachel. So Yoshua sends two spies to Yericho, cherish. Okay, so that's sort of covertly, right? But who is kimacharish? Shaul, right? When the B'nai mock machim, and don't bring him a tribute after he is anointed by Shmuel. At the end of Shmuel Al of we're told, Vahikimacharish. He was silent. And of course, Esther, Im Hacharish, Tacharishi, Ba'et Hazot. Right? Uh, and so we have really, I think, many examples of this trait of silence. And I think that uh, uh, one of the things that the Midrash is pointing our attention to in, in describing Binyamin's stone as a yeshfeh, is that it's not that the children of Rachel are silent because they have nothing to say. Right? Yeshpeh. Is that silence for the children of Rachel is a tactic. Right? They know how to use silence in order to achieve their goals. What are their goals? That's really what I want to understand. But before I get there, I want to say something a little bit. Again, you know, every of these, all of these character traits or all of these um, uh, aspects that are used to describe the, the family of Rachel are both positive and negative, right? Uh, certainly I think despite the Midrashic, what seems to be sort of sweeping endorsement of the silence of the children of Rachel, I think uh, it's important to note several reservations that we might have about that silence. First of all, as we know, in the certainly in the examples that I cited, even though the midrash did not cite, Silence is not always the best idea. Mordechai demands that Esther break her silence. Or he, he, he asks her to think about breaking her silence. He certainly indicates that her silence is not worthy. Right? And, and Chazal are very critical of Shaul's silence when the B'nai Blial do not bring him a tribute. Now, um, the other point that I want to make about the silence is that silence here is not just about uh, being quiet. Right? It's, as I said before, it's about concealing something. Knowing something, but not saying it. There is an element of subterfuge involved. right? There's a deceitful element to this character trait of silence. We have it in many of the Rachel stories. Think of Rachel hiding the idols and then sitting on them and misrepresenting why she can't get up. Right? We have Yosef hiding his identity from his brothers. We have Ehud ben Geirah, who is certainly a very deceptive character, right? For those of you who are familiar with the story, we have Michal, the daughter of Shaul, putting the idol in her bed and putting the goats... Uh, um, wool around in order to represent hair right, and pretend that David is it might be for a good reason that she does this but there is an element of deceit and so I think it's important to note and this may be one of the most important points that I want to make in this Shior and that is that Nobody's born with a good or a bad trait, right? Nobody's born at and nobody's born a Russia. Nobody's born righteous, and nobody's born evil. People are born with a certain deck of cards. God gives us each certain strengths, and each of those strengths, in order to turn them into a strength, has to be used consciously towards Avodat Hashem, towards service of God, and towards fulfilling one's destiny in this world. Nothing here is positive, and nothing here is negative. It's all, I think, really what we make of it. So, to summarize what we've seen so far in the Midrashic attempts to characterize Bnei Rachel, we've seen that they are uh, very, uh, they're able to endure strength, uh, tests of character, let's say, they have strength, they have the ability to to withstand societal pressure, they can rise to great prominence, right, gedulatan, They can fight Amalek, and they know how to use silence. Now, I don't want to claim that they're the only ones that have these particular traits in Tanakh, right? We're certainly not suggesting that these traits are exclusive to the children of Rachel. Certainly, we see that David fights Amalek, and of course, very successfully, we see that Yoav... Uh, ben Truya uses subterfuge to his advantage, even though obviously it doesn't seem to be a very positive story there. And we see, for example, that Daniel, right, rises to prominence in Babel, right? So these are traits that are exclusive to the children of Rachel, and at the same time, I think the fact that the Midrash creates this sort of idea of B'nei HaShel Rachel and tries to build up all of these particular traits that are common to B'nei Rachel means that we have to pay some attention to this. What is it that the Midrash is trying to direct our attention to about the strengths and perhaps some of the dangers of Bnei Rachel, but before I, I try to bring it all together, I want to add one particular point that I, I've never seen that Chazal spoke about, but I think it's really rather self-evident. When we are talking about Bnei Rachel, we cannot but dis- discuss their beauty, right? Uh, these are beautiful characters. It's not just that they're beautiful. There are many characters in Tanakh that are beautiful, right? Many, many, many figures in Tanakh are described as beautiful. Sarah, Rifka, Abigail, David, Shalom, right? I mean, there really are many uh, characters in Tanakh that are beautiful. But what's interesting about Baneha's Shel Rachel is that they have a particular type of beauty which actually gets a particular phrase. Yifat Tor and Yifat Mareh. Okay, that phrase with one little variation, if at tovat Mara, with Esther, that phrase is used only about Baneha shel Rachel. And what I want to suggest is is that it's a particular type of beauty, right? It's not it's not the same beauty as other Tanakh figures. Um, and it seems to have a different sort of effect. It's an evocative beauty. It's one that I think moves People And not just moves people internally, but actually moves people to do something for the one who possesses that beauty. You might call it in English charisma, right? A certain kind of evocative charm. Um, The Midrashim are very aware of the fact that beauty is, in fact, a hereditary trait. So look, for example, if you look in source number four, I brought for you the Berishi Rabbah, but let's just skip to the second source that I brought for you in source number four, the Ibn Ezra, on the words, vahi Yosef, yefet Tar mar'eh, says just one word, Kiimo. Right, she was also yefet Tar v'yefet mar'eh, and uh, Esther also, yefet to'ar Tovat mar'eh. And whatever this quality is, that is shared between Rachel, Yosef, and Esther, it is not just beauty. It's a sort of beauty that moves people to do something, as I said before, and I'll give you a few examples. First of all, Rachel. When Yaakov first sees Rachel, right, what does he do? He pushes that stone off of the well. Right, sort of turns him into Superman. That stone, right, that was too heavy for any one person. Yaakov is able to move the stone off the well after he glimpses Rachel, and of course, then he's willing to work for Rachel, seven years. And another seven years, right? This is the sort of effect that Rachel has on Yaakov. But it's not just Rachel, it's Yosef also, right? Yosef is described as sort of gliding effortlessly through life, right? Every time he hits rock bottom, someone sees him and, finds, and he finds favor in someone's eyes, and his charms work to his benefit, and he is pulled from the bottom, to the top, right? Perhaps not by his envious brothers, but by his father, by Potiphar, by the warden of the prison into which which he's thrown, right? He moves from the bottom and then immediately to the top. We see something very similar with Esther. Esther's taken into a palace that is filled with women. Women have come from all the corners of the Persian Empire. And she walks in and immediately Hegai notes her and brings her everything that she could possibly imagine. This is what we see over and over. Everyone who sees these are moved. And of course, the minute that Ahasuerus sees Esther, he places that, that crown on her head. What does this all this mean? Right? How do we put all of this together? Why does the Tanakh create this very strong family with these very strong features that, uh, that seem to run throughout the family? Um, and and there is one other sort of side point that I don't want to dwell on too much. It relates to the sheer that uh, Abigail Rock gave yesterday, which unfortunately I haven't yet heard, but I do plan to hear, and that is, of course, the role of clothes right so some of you i'm sure were in Abigail's Shior. Um, and i want to specifically relate it to what we're saying about Rachel which is that there there are a lot of clothing going on in the Rachel story right whether or not we're talking about the ketonet pasim right the coat the special coat of Yosef or even Yosef who's giving right extra khalifot bigadim right he's giving extra khalifot smalot, extra articles of clothing to Binyamin, Yamin, you gotta keep it in the family, right? The clothes. You have the Big Day Malchut, right? Certainly of Esther, you have the clothes with Mordechai. You have also with Yurovam ben Navat, right? That sort of a sideline character who I mentioned before, the first king of Israel, who is described as wearing a Simla Hadashah. He is wearing a new dress. Okay, so we have. Uh, not just a sense that Banash and Rachel are, uh, are beautiful, they're also cultivating their beauty, right? They're interested in their external appearance. Now, this sounds bad, right? I mean, I, you know, I have no judgment intended, right? But it sounds like something very uh, external, something that is superficial, and certainly clothing is something that can be used to conceal, right? It brings us back to that subterfuge, right? It can be used to cover up. It also is something which is external to the person himself. It's one of the reasons that uh, Rav Shem Jaffa Hirsch talks etymologically about words for clothing in Tanakh, and he mentions that the word beged is related to begida, to, you know, to betrayal, and ma'al Mi'il, right, is related to mi'ilah, right, which is also some sort of betrayal. Right? He makes these connections suggesting, of course, that clothing can be something that can pervert the person, right, or certainly be used to not represent the true inner person or perhaps even to prevent the person from uh, properly developing his internal self, if he's just cultivating his external self. So perhaps he'll never properly cultivate his internal self. I want to uh, take a step back and maybe m- maybe uh, offer a more measured uh, perception of certainly beauty in Tanakh. Uh, like all God-given attributes, beauty in Tanakh can be something which is good, right? Sha'ul is very tall, he has the comportment of a leader. Uh, David is said to be Yifeh Enaim. And yet, at the same time, beauty is something that we are wary of. And we're wary of it partially because the Tanakh is wary of it. Why is the Tanakh wary of it? Well, in which story does God specifically express the wariness of external appearances in the story of choosing the king after Shaul, right? So Shmuel goes to the house of Yishai and there he sees Eliav, who is very tall and strikes him as having the comportment of a king and Shmuel gets all excited and he says Ach neged Hashem this is God's anointed and God says to Shmuel Al Tabait el marehu. Do not look at his appearance. The el gvoa komato and to the height uh, that he holds himself with. Ki For I have rejected him. Ki share yer e It is not like the way people see. Ki adam yer e Lainaim naim. yer e la leva People only see with the eyes, and God can see into the heart. In other words, beauty can be deceptive. It can make people think that they know something about the person, when in fact, all that they're really seeing is something very superficial. I think that the danger of these external appearances as they appear in Tanakh is not just uh, for the person who is seeing the, 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 the beautiful person standing uh, across from him, but also for the beautiful person themselves. People with beauty, and this I think really is part of the dangers of the Bnei Rachel experience. People with beauty can easily get by on their beauty, right? I think that that's part of the story of Yosef. It may even be part of the story of Esther. They tend to forget that it's something that they have not earned, that it is something that has been given them, that it's something which is external and superficial. And instead, because of its value, they can simply use it without ever asking themselves the question, why did Hashem give this particular trait to me? This is something I think that we see in the stories of both Yosef and Esther. Like all character traits, as I said, if you don't think deeply about them, if you just use them, then they never are properly realized in service of God. And what I want to claim is, is that both in the Yosef story and in the Esther story, their position that they rise to in the foreign country is a direct result of their charm of the beauty that God has given them. They are clearly aware of their charm, of the effect of their beauty. They enjoy it, they cultivate it, they use it. But the test comes when they have to ask themselves, why did God give me this particular uh, gift? Now, I think that that what we see in both the story of Yosef and Esther is that they're given this trait um, and that in the beginning, they misuse it, okay? That they have to learn slowly but surely what it is that, is, uh, that they are meant to do with this, how they are meant to turn this gift, to turn the faith that they have been given into their destiny. Think of Yosef, whose beginnings present him as a dreamer, a tattletale, Sorry, maybe that's not a nice word, right? And it tells on his brothers, whose position as his favored, as the favored son of Yaakov earns him the ketonet kasim, but not necessarily the wisdom to get along with his brothers. In particular, I think, we note Rashi's uh, portrayal of Yosef, which is based on the Midrash, which portrays Yosef Over and over in the beginning of the story, enjoying his beauty, riding to a place of prominence wherever he goes as a result of his beauty. I always have at this point the picture of... Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat, right, which is, of course, not Rashi's parish. That's maybe Andrew Lloyd Webber's parish, right? But, you know, Joseph is sort of swishing across the stage. That's what Rashi's portraying as well. Or I should say the opposite, right? That's what the Midrashima portraying. Look, for example, in source number seven. Look in source, uh, I'm sorry, look in source number eight. Uh, no, nine. Rashi, Vareishi in Lamadai. Look at what Rashi says here. He's quoting the Midrash. What does it mean that he was a Na'ar? Right? He would fix his hair, he would play with his eye makeup. This is an amazing depiction amazingly negative depiction, I think, in Rashi. In this depiction, what we have here is Yosef enjoying his beauty, considering it to be a legitimate means to living a life of privilege. It's no wonder then that the brothers decide to remove Yosef's coat to take away not just the symbol of his father's favor, but the symbol of his beauty, his charms, and the special love which it has invoked from his father. And yet, what we see later in the story is that Yosef comes to the house of Potiphar. And apparently, at least according to the Midrash, he still has not learned his lesson. He still has not learned that his beauty is not something for the purpose of his own self-promotion, but rather something that has been given to him by God to... Help others to 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 be used somehow to fulfill his destiny in service of God. What do we find in the house of Potiphar? Well, first of all, if you look in Bereishit, Parak Lamid Tet, Pasuk Vav, what you see is that in the description of Yosef in the house of Potiphar, we are told Vayhi Yosef Yefet Tar Marat, and there. Rashi tells us, look in source number 10, Once he saw that he is the ruler there, that he has once again, as a result of his great charm and his great charisma, risen to the top of the house of Potiphar, he he started to eat and to drink and to curl his hair. And in this Rashi, Rashi says, God turns to Yosef and says, your father is mourning and you're curling your hair? I'm going to bring you the bear. And the bear, of course, is Isha But there's another Midrash. The, the Midrash that this is based on says something different. says, it's not that God was angry at Yosef because his father was mourning and he was busy cultivating his his charms. The Midrash says something different. The Midrash says that he would fix his hair, and he would fix his eyes, and then he would go out to the shuk, and he would walk around saying, li na'e, li ya'i, na'e gibor, I'm beautiful, I'm charming, I am great. Or that's the Midrash. And the Midrash has God saying to Yosef, "Atagibor, Yeah, i Taya'i. You're beautiful? Have a Duba, I'm gonna bring a bear and that bear will show you what are the dangers of beauty. I've paraphrased the Midrash a little bit. I think that that's pretty much what the Midrash is trying to do. The Midrash is trying to show us that the story of Potiphar in Yosef's life is to teach him to recognize the beauty, to use the beauty. Once he recognizes the dangers of the beauty, then he might have the ability to ask the proper question. There's only one really proper question here. Why did God give him this gift? And actually, this is a transformative experience in Yosef's life. From this point forward, he really does change. Yosef goes from being a dreamer of dreams to an interpreter of dreams. He no longer lives a superficial existence in which he sort of floats by on his very evident charms, but rather he becomes someone who consciously uses those gifts that have been given to him in order to find meaning, in order to help his his brothers eventually, in order to rise to a position from which he can realize his destiny. And this is really a turning point for Yosef. I want to take you for a moment, before we sort of pull it all together, I want to take you for a moment to Esther, to the story of Esther. And again, I'm sort of skimming over, I think, what are, you know, stories that obviously have to be properly learned in depth. I just want to sort of pull out of these stories some ideas that will give us a little bit of a sense of what are the dangers of beauty and ultimately who are the Bnei Rachel and what is their destiny. But I think that Esther is being portrayed as undergoing a very similar transformation as Yosef. Initially, I'm going to leave aside the very well-known Midrashim about Megillat Esther and just see if we can focus on who Esther is in the first few chapters of Megillat Esther Initially, she is the beautiful Shushan woman. She is beautiful. She is evocative. She plays the role. And she reaps, reaps the fruits. I mean, she may or may not want to be in the palace, but she never says a word. She gets to the palace. She is pushed and prodded and perfumed and and crowned, right? And, and never says a word. That's who Esther is in the first place three chapters of Migilat Esther. She is rising to the top, whether she wants to or does not want to, because of her external appearance. She also never speaks. It is a very telling moment in Esther Perekdalid when Mordechai goes before the Shar HaMelech, Bilavush Sat, Right, after Mordechai hears of the terrible decree and goes to the king's gate in sackcloth, and he cries out that great and bitter cry, and in Esther, Perak, Dalid, Pasuk, Dalid, Esther's uh, servants come to her, and they tell her what they have seen, and the Pasuk tells us as follows. Vatit chal chal meod. Right, that's an anamanopia. Vatidchalchal hamalka. You can feel her trembling with emotion. What is it that has moved her so deeply? Is it Mordechai's cries? Is it the decree of genocide? Look, look at the continuation of the pasuk. Vatidchalchal hamalka meod. Vatishlach begadim lahalbish et Mordechai ulahasir sakol me'alaf. What seems to have moved Esther here, and this is, I think, a very revealing moment, is when she hears that Mordecai is in the king's gate dressed in sackcloth, and she responds with horror, with revulsion. Instead of asking him to explain his motives, instead of asking him why he's in sackcloth, she sends him a change of clothes. Now, that may be a harsh reading of Esther, but what it does, I think, is it gives extra resonance to the continuation of the parak. If, in fact, what we see here about Esther is the value that she ascribes to external appearances at this point in her life, and why not? Look where it's gotten her. Now, suddenly, she sees Mordecai thwarting everything that she believes in. If you want to rise to greatness, you have to cultivate your external appearance. It's worked for her until now. At this point in the story, Esther seems to have allowed her beauty to define her. And it's Mordecai who turns to her and creates this incredible, or, or, or at least uh, uh, precipitates this incredible transformation. It is Mordecai who says to her not what she should think, but that she has to search for meaning in her destiny. If you will stay silent and passive At this time, he says to her, if you will plod along the trajectory of your own charmed existence, you will be lost to the tidal waves of history because you will never fulfill your destiny. You will never scratch the surface of who you are and who you could be. And he says to her, Who knows? If it's for this reason, that you have achieved what you've achieved, he doesn't know any more than she does. But he says to her, it's not what I know that I'm telling you. It's that you must search for the answer to this question. You must consciously use your beauty, your superficial gift, to tap into a deeper understanding of that gift, a deeper understanding of the reason that you have been born with those particular gifts. And so I think that this is a very um, a very adequate description of the dangers of beauty that we have in these two stories and yet both Yosef and Esther undergo, I think, a very significant transformation. They each learn to view their beauty as a means to an end, to penetrate past the superficial appearance in order to realize that it is given to them in order to realize some sort of long-term enduring destiny. Oh, I will say one more thing about clothing. Um, I, I decided once I heard that Abigail was going to be speaking about clothing that I would not not develop this topic too much. But I do want to mention, as an aside, I don't think it's coincidence that it's not just that there's a strong role of clothing in the Esther story, I'm sorry, in the B'nai Rachel stories, but that there's a noted theme of ripped clothing in the Bnei Rachel stories, of course, right? And this, I think, is really what's significant. We have Yosef with the ripping of the We have Shaul, right, with the ripping of the coat. I won't say whose coat, right? We don't really know. We have Yeroban ben Avad, which also has the ripping. We have Mordechai with the ripping, right? You have to know when to rip the clothes and penetrate more deeply. Right, I think that's part of what's going on here. Except Esther, by the way, Esther never rips clothes, but she uses those clothes in order to achieve a an important end. Right? What happens right after Mordechai says to her? Right, he tells her what does she do right away at the beginning of Parak Hay? bash. Esther malchut. She puts on those clothes, but with a plan. Not in a superficial way, but in a way in which she is more deeply understanding the role of these clothes in realizing her destiny, what she has been born for. Now, this really takes me to the final part of what I want to accomplish in this year, now that we've sort of established two things. One is that the Bnei Rachel have these particular traits in common. And the other is that unless we consciously use our traits, we will be led by our traits and we will not have control over using those traits for our destiny. What is the destiny of Bnei Rachel? Why have they been given this strength and this beauty and this ability to rise to great prominence and ultimately uh, use the silence to, to conceal? and uh, eventually to fight Amalek. Is there some sort of common feature to all of these different uh, aspects of the Bnei Rachel that we have seen in the different Midrashim and in the different Psukim? I want to start, perhaps, with trying to understand the beauty. I think that the first thing that we note about the Bnei Rachel is that they can succeed in a world which values externality, materialism, superficial values, In other words, the beauty of Bnei Rachel is given to them in order to help them to lead Am Yisrael in a foreign setting, and not just any foreign setting, but of course, uh, a setting of of great, um, of great power. Right? Both of them become very, very successful in a foreign palace and use that position in order to help the Jewish people. Their beauty enables the children of Rachel to be fantastic leaders in the palace world in which the most powerful figures, the wealthiest and grandest monarch live in their opulence, in their superficiality, It shouldn't surprise us that Esther is successful in a palace where we have an entire chapter that describes the tapestries and the and the the vessels and the different materials that are used. I don't even have to translate that, right? The 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 focus of Megillat Esther of the Persian Empire is. An, a setting which appreciates beauty, which appreciates glamour, which appreciates charm, and Yosef and Esther can function in that world in a way which is effective for helping Amistra El. In what way do they help Amistra El? Well, certainly, uh, physically, they help Am Yisrael, right? Esther and Mordechai save Amisrael from genocide. Yosef saves uh, the, 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 the children of Yaakov who come down, he gives them Goshen, and of course, saves them from starvation as well. Um, but I think that there are certain things, and by the way, I think some of this idea of the Bnei Rachel being able to function in the diaspora also helps to explain some of the other traits that Chazal are talking about. Not just the beauty, not just the clothing, but also the silence, the subterfuge. Sometimes you have to work against the society when you're in an environment that does not share your value system. And also the ability to stand alone, to withstand trials and tribulations. These are all aspects of the Bnei Rachel which can help them to function effectively in the diaspora. But it's not just their ability to help Am Israel to survive in the diaspora. I think it's something even deeper than that. They are also, the Bnei Rachel, uniquely able to look past the surface and find depth, right? They have to tear the clothes in order to find the person underneath. They have to get past their superficial success and cultivate their internal character in order to achieve. These gifts of the children of Rachel are not just there in order to enable them to uh, succeed and to dig deeply in themselves but rather, I think, also to teach Amisrael in the diaspora to dig past the surface reality of the diaspora. The diaspora, both in the story of Yosef and in the story of Esther, is somewhat devoid of God's overt presence. And the experience of being someone who has to work past externals and learn how to scratch the surface layer of their persona, gives Baneha Shel Rachel, the children of Rachel, the unique ability to teach Am Yisrael to find God in Galut, to find God in a world which seems to be divide, devoid of God to find God in a world in which materialism and superficiality seems to reign free. Yad Hashem, the workings of God, are not obvious in either of these stories. And in both of these stories, it is the leader who comes from the Bnei Rachel, who is positioned to teach Am Yisrael how to penetrate the surface of ends and find God, deep in the story. Indeed, Yosef, when his brothers come to him with great fear, and they say, you're going to kill us, right? We, we sold you here. Yosef says to them, do not be afraid, do not be upset. Ki lo atem shlachtem otihena ki ha Do not be afraid. It was not you who sent me here. It was God. And I think Mordechai is teaching Esther a similar lesson when he tells her that all of the events in her life are not meant to be understood on the surface, but rather she is meant to search for the deeper meaning of the events that seem to be happenstance, that seem just to have occurred to, uh, to her uh, because she happened to be there. dea. Um, Mordechai says to Esther, la'et kazot he got malchut And he tells her, Don't look at the meaning of the immediacy of the events. You need to look at the long term. This is part of the discussion that takes place between Esther and Mordechai in chapter four, when Mordecai says to Esther, You gotta go to the king and get him to annul the decree of genocide. And she says, Well, I can't do that. Everybody knows that if you go to the king, he might kill you. And he might not, but he might kill you, right? Which is, of course, her worrying about short-term events. And Mordechai says, you need to look at the deeper picture. You need to penetrate beneath the surface. You need to become not a dreamer of dreams, but an interpreter of dreams. And this takes me back to the story of Amalek. Perhaps now we are equipped to understand why Baneha Shel Rachel, are particularly good at fighting Amalek. Amalek is a symbol of short term existence, of superficiality, of happenstance, of what we call Asher Karcha Baderech, who happened by you in the road, of perhaps Mikriut, the Goral, the poor, right? I'll translate happenstance, the lottery, the poor, right? Purim, that's why we call it Purim, right? Of luck, of fate. It is also a search for instant gratification. I am hungry now, says Esav. Why should I think about long-term ramifications? I am looking only in the short term. Those who understand superficiality can fight it. Those who believe in a deeper meaning, even when it's not discernible, can fight those who deny it. Um, I think that Chazal may be saying something similar. We won't read it together, but if you look in source number 12, Chazal say that the reason that Yosef can fight Amalek is because Yosef recognizes—maybe we should read it. Look in source number 12— (inaudible) Davar Acher Yosef Hoda B'tchiat Hametim. Yosef believed in Tchiat <inaudible> Hametim. Yosef saw something beyond what was apparent on the surface. How do we know that? Look at what he says: Pakod Ivkod Elokim Etchem. V'Alitem Et Atzmatay Mizay Etchem. He sees the larger picture. The Esav kafar b'triat and Esav denied that there was triat He didn't see it; it wasn't on the surface, it wasn't important, and therefore he said, Hine All I care about is what I can see. The midrash goes on and says, "Amara kadosh yavo Yosef." The one who has a deeper understanding, a broader understanding of the meaning of his life, will always be victorious over the one who is just living in the moment. That's what the Midrash seems to be saying about Yosef fighting Amalek. And that may be one reason why Yosef, or the B'nei Rachel, are equipped to fight Amalek. Perhaps this is also one reason why Shaul is chosen to be the first king in Israel, even though we know that Yehuda is the one who is supposed to set up kingship. Sha'ul is chosen to fight Amalek. Sha'ul is a Ben Rachel. The first mitzvah that we have, B'Knisah La'aretz, when we come into the land, is to fight Amalek. But, I think that Sha'ul fails as a Ben Rachel. Sha'ul uses his ability He uses his beauty. He uses his ability to obtain kingship for himself. He takes from the spoils. He leaves the king Agag alive, showing that he appreciates kingship in its own right. He is impressed with the outer trappings. Think of Michal Bat Shaul, who berates David when he is dancing ecstatically before the Aron, and of course she is there called Michal Bat Sha'ul, and Sha'ul cannot uproot superficial ideology from the world because he has not yet uprooted it in himself. Sha'ul, I think, is the failed Ben Rachel, and he never is able to fully uproot Amalek. Who takes up where Sha'ul leaves off? Mordechai and Esther. Shaul ben Kish leaves off the fight of Amalek, and it is taken up by Mordechai ben Kish. Shaul's leadership is given Liruto hatov mimenu to his friend who is better than him, and Esther is given the chance to be the ruta hatova mimena. Right? The when when Vashti is uh, taken off the throne. It is given to Esther, who is described as Ruhta I'm just trying to show that Esther and Mordechai are the continuation of Shaul. And of course, when they are threatened by Haman, the decree um, of of destruction of um of La La and Ashimbi we are reminded of Shaul's inability to keep God's command, the continuation of the Shaul story happens in the Mordechai and the Esther story and of course the end of the story in the war against uh, Haman they do not take from the spoils this is the correction of of the story of Shaul. And so the Bnei Rachel give us leadership in the, in Chussaretz, as well as a formula for survival in Chussaretz, in an environment in which we are not the masters of our own destiny, in an environment in which we must often work against the prevailing norms in an environment in which we must work hard to find meaning beneath the surface and to find God in a place in which he is not readily discernible. And Yosef, because of his ability to use the gifts that have been given him towards leadership of Israel in Chuzarev, ultimately becomes the example not just of a great leader, but the paradigm of Am Yisrael's ability to survive in Galut. I want to close with a Midrash, which I brought for you here in source number 13. It's a Tanchuma, it's a Midrash, Tanchuma. The Midrash tells us as follows, Yosef hurad Mitzrayimah, Yosef is taken down to Mitzrayim, (laughs) amar katov v'chevere adam em'shechem b'avotot ava. Reuim hayu Yisrael. We read in Mitzrayim the shalshalot of kolarim. Am Yisrael should really have been taken down to Egypt in chains and in iron collars, Kishem sheyardu lebavel ilule shekadam Yosef. Kol masha irali Yosef iralat Everything that happened to Yosef happened to Am Yisrael during the days of their galut. Masha kativ biYosef kativ biZion. Be Yosef k'tiv mar mar'eh Because with Yosef, his beauty is evident k'tiv yofi Also, Am El and Galut have the ability to maintain their beauty But to maintain their beauty in order to serve God We can learn from Yosef how to maintain our existence in Galut He becomes the key to understanding how to survive as a Jewish nation, to find Yad Hashem, to guide the Jewish people during the course of the many years that we existed as a nation in the diaspora. The children of Rachel can provide the Jewish people with a way to find meaning in a world which doesn't naturally seem to cohere or to conform with a world of our own making and of our own values, the children of Rachel can prevent Am Yisrael from blending in and becoming adherents of a superficial, beautiful world. Ultimately, this understanding of the traits of the Bnei Rachel has a broader message, I think, for understanding our role in this world. God gives us, each of us, certain gifts, certain advantages, certain personality traits, and a certain situation of life. To some he gives intelligence, to others he gives athletic ability, to others he may give artistic ability, wealth, charm, or beauty. Each person must mold themselves and the raw material which God has given them into people who are not just worthy of that gift, but learn to use them in service to God. And Latifah and I'm Mr. Al. Thank you.